Welcome to Sweat the Technique, a show dedicated to answering the question, how do we get better faster? Today, my guest is Anna Lorena Fabrega, who is the chief evangelist at Synthesis, an online AI-powered learning platform that spun out of a school that was founded by Elon Musk. Most recently, Anna is the author of a new book called The Learning Game. The central thesis of the book is that today's education system, which hasn't changed much over the past 70 years or so, teaches kids to play a particular type of game that actually doesn't set them up very well for success in the real world. That game is play by the rules, listen to the teacher, do what you're told, follow this one-size-fits-all path from kindergarten through college. Well, Anna thinks that kids should play a different game, what she calls the learning game, which in her view does a better job of activating and maintaining the innate love for learning we see in kids when they are very young and that seems to gradually diminish over time. In Ms. Fabrega's view, schools are complicit in squeezing that curiosity out of kids, and in her book, she has advice for educators, parents, and policymakers on how we can build better schools and be better parents. She draws on her own experience as a student in different kinds of schools around the world, as a teacher in New York, Boston, and Panama, and from a lot of research she has done about how kids really learn. Now, I will say, when I read this book, there were a lot of moments where I said, okay, this sounds great for an individual teacher or parent, in some cases, nearly utopian. But as a leader of a network of over 20 schools, it's hard for me to imagine how we could bring these ideas to scale in order to have a bigger impact on the education system. In this interview, we discuss some of these challenges, some trends in education and in parenting that might make spreading these ideas more possible, and also how not every idea in here will work for every kid. Fundamentally though, I found her book fascinating and thought-provoking and hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. With that, here is Ana Lorena Fabrega. Anna, welcome to Sweat the Technique. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. I loved your book, The Learning Game. It seems like a really good combination of bringing together familiar concepts in education that others have written about and your own ideas for how education should work based on your own experiences. Can you give us a little bit of background on what those experiences were? Yeah. So I'm originally from Panama, but growing up, I moved around a lot. And so by the time I was 14, I had been to 10 different schools in seven different countries. And so I really got to experience what it was like to be the new girl in new academic environments and having to adapt and sort of pick up on the things that would help me navigate, you know, the school system in the most effective way. And so looking back, I realized that what I did in order to sort of survive um, with all these changes was that I quickly picked up on what a successful student looked like, right? And, and I, I knew that I had to be, you know, appear diligent and attentive in order to sort of pass without getting in trouble. And so I started to do what in my book I call the game of school, right? I picked up on what a successful student looked like, how many times I had to raise my hand to get that participation grade. I had to sit up. I had to be quiet. I could not question my teachers. I didn't want to get in trouble. Um, I had to fill out a bunch of worksheets. I figured out how to memorize things to pass the tests, et cetera, et cetera. And so I became really good at the game of school, right? I had to play it a lot, but I didn't really enjoy it. What I actually enjoyed was learning itself. And that usually happened outside of school for me when I was exploring my interests without having the fear of being judged, when I could just take the learning in any direction I wanted and spend however long I wanted without being interrupted. And yeah, without this fear of being penalized if I made mistakes. And so 
I was very, very curious. And I think my parents did an excellent job kind of cultivating that curiosity and being the perfect enablers, right? Making sure that whenever I had a serious and productive interest in something, they would do anything to support that. And so I grew up, you know, with this love for learning and I had a natural way of explaining things. And so naturally I I wanted to become an educator and I enjoyed working with kids. I had the opportunity to do it in the summer before going to college. And I was like, this is, this is what I want to do. It's very exciting. I love learning from them. And so when I was studying to become an educator, I went to NYU and I had the opportunity to student teach at several different placements, right? It's like, I think 200 hours that you have to spend in different classrooms, different schools, different grades. And so that's when, you know, when I was observing, I was supposed to be observing the teachers, but really was so focused on the students because it dawned on me, you know, where we're kind of stuck in education, right? Like all these kids were playing the game of school and I could recognize it. I was an expert in it myself, right? And they were all, you know, sitting quiet, raising their hand, pretending to pay attention, just going through the motions, checking the boxes, but they didn't seem excited to learn. Like that whole, when I would, you know, interact with younger kids and and I have a 10-month-old myself, they're excited about everything. They're curious about everything. They want to learn. They they don't care if they, you know, if they're confused at first, they keep going. And so all this excitement to learn, I would notice that as kids get older, they would start to lose that spark. And so I started questioning and I was like, huh, like this is interesting. It sounds familiar. I wonder why this happens. But I was still like, you know, I'm going to do things differently in my classroom. And so to a certain extent, I did. When I became a teacher, I taught first, third and fourth grade in Boston, Panama, New York. I did try to do things differently. I try to give my kids lots of choices and autonomy in the classroom. I try to make you know, the place really inviting and somewhere where they actually wanted to wake up and come every morning and spend time there. I tried to focus on the things that they were curious about to a certain extent. Of course, I had to adhere to curriculums. And so there was just so much I could do. And so to, to a certain extent, I think I did a great job. I mean, my, my students were very excited to come to school and they seemed to love learning and math and reading and especially writing. But what I started to notice is as my students got older and went on to the next grade levels, they would often come back to visit or we would have reunions and they no longer enjoyed the things that they used to love, right? And they would talk to me about like all the, you know, chores that they had to do and how learning is enforced and all these things. And they'd started to lose all these things that I've tried really hard to cultivate in my classroom and that I thought that I had succeeded on. And so that's the moment where I, I just got really discouraged. It was my fourth year teaching and I was like, you know, I started to realize where education stuck, right? Kids are stuck in the game of school imitating their teachers instead of thinking for themselves and, you know, just going through the motions and solving textbook problems instead of really thinking creatively and and doing things that are actually applicable to the real world and following instructions instead of figuring things out. And so I realized, you know, I don't see a place for me here anymore. I want to explore alternative learning options outside of the system that kids actually want to be part of, right? And I wasn't sure where, where this was going. I just knew that it was very hard to make a change as an individual within the system, given all the parameters and bureaucracies and standards and everything that we have to adhere to. It leaves very little room for the things that I personally thought that were very valuable. And I didn't think that we were preparing kids for the world that they're going to live in. And they certainly weren't graduating with the attitude that I would hope they would have towards learning and and life in general. And so I decided to quit, which was a big surprise to a lot of people. (laughs) And they were like, oh, Ms. Fab is leaving. What? Where is she going next? And so, yeah, I've been for the past four years venturing the alternative education space, which happens to be growing and there are lots of options. 
And a lot of the things that I've been researching on and trying and experiencing turned into the book, The Learning Game. And so I think I'm just scratching the surface, but that's where I'm now. So your book describes what I would call a very radical rethinking of what schools are, not surprisingly, given the background that you just shared. Tell us a little bit about that. Like, how would school look if you could wave a wand and change all the schools to fit your vision? Well, this is this is an interesting question because I've thought about this a lot. And a lot of people ask me, like, why don't you open your own school? And the reason why I don't is because I think that what I've realized with time is that there's not one way to do education or not one approach that works or one philosophy that works. And I've, like you said, I've written and studied, you know, what the big giants have done. And, and, and there's a lot in alternative education I'm inclined to. I love the Montessori approach. I love the Reggio Emilia approach. I think there are very interesting things about democratic schools and innovative schools. But I haven't felt like, I don't think there's one that I'm like, yes, this is exactly what I want to marry. And and I, what I think every kid would benefit from. Like, I, I, I don't think that that's true ever. And so that's why I, I don't think I would build like an institution or like a place where, you know, I would say like, OK, this is the right way to do it. Kids come. I'm going to educate you. What I've realized is that it's a lot more organic and it's a lot more flexible. And I believe in diversity of approaches. And so if I were to envision, you know, what the future of education would look like in an ideal world. And of course, you know, as I talk about this, I know that there are a lot of things that are realistically not doable right now because of parents' situations. They have to drop their kids off somewhere that's quote-unquote safe. And I say quote-unquote because that has been unfortunately changing in the past years. But the reality for most families is they have to go to work and they have to drop their kids somewhere for a number of hours a day. And, you know, in their minds, that's where they're learning and, and interacting with other kids. And so for that reason, I don't think schools are going to go away. But if I were to envision, and I think that we are slowly getting here, it would be, um, again, diversity of approaches. So you would be able to sort of structure your kid's day based on your family's needs and your kid's learning needs, right? So with technology, and we can talk about this in a bit, it's advancing so quickly. And now with the digital tutors, you know, that they have blown my mind. And I was a big proponent of human one-to-one -one interactions because I understand the importance of the relationship and the learning process. But this digital AI tutors are really starting to feel like a real human. So I think we're on to something there. And I've seen how effective they are in teaching the hardcore academics in like an hour a day. So you get that out of the way, the general knowledge the kids, of course, need in order to you know be in the real world. And so then the kids have the rest of the day to structure it however they want. So they can engage in project-based learning, which I'm a huge fan of because I've realized that when kids are working on a problem or a project, they actually start to meet certain things and tools and they see the relevance of what they're learning because they're applying it right away. And if you look at research and, at, you know, everything that I've seen, it's very, very clear that kids need to understand, you know, what they're going to be and when they're going to be using that knowledge or that things that you wanted to teach them right away. Otherwise, knowledge decays really quickly and it's just a waste of time. It goes in here and it goes out here. And so when they're working on projects or on problems, they actually get to apply right away the things that they're learning. They see, oh, I need a little bit of this. I need to learn about this in order to solve this. And so everything becomes very practical. So I would love opportunities for kids to engage in this kind of learning, project-based learning for a few hours a day. I'm reading a lot lately about the importance of movement and I'm just like terrified. The more I read about it and the more I see the research, I'm like, what are we doing? I mean, if you look at what kids need to develop 
they really need to be releasing so much energy. They need to be running around. They need to be playing. They need to be outdoors. And of course, this is not happening. And the results are pretty alarming, right? Like you have these kids that need to be releasing energy. They're not because they're since 8 a.m. or 7 a.m. in these classrooms where you ask them to sit still, sit up, like things that are not natural to them. Of course, they start fidgeting. They start moving. They start, you know, jumping up and down. And we're like, oh, these kids are ADHD. And then you have, you know, and this is a whole nother topic, but you start, you know, then thinking that we need to medicate kids when in reality, they haven't had the opportunities that they need in order to release all this energy that they have. And so in an ideal world, the kids would be playing outdoors in, I love the concept of forest schools or beach schools where kids are with other kids and a few guides and they're outdoors, they're exploring, they're in nature, they're like learning about different things in the world that they encounter. And so that paired up with project-based learning and the digital AI tutors, I I think it's a great place to start and it's a very holistic way for kids to spend, you know, their most formative years. Then in addition to that, I also love the learning pods and sort of the micro schools. And of course, they vary. But I, what I love about them is that you have mixed age groups, which I'm a huge fan of for several reasons. And we can talk about that in a bit. And so kids are interacting in a more real world way with kids that are older, that are younger, and it tends to be an environment that allows for more flexible curriculum aligned to the kids' interests. And so I would also allow a lot of space for open exploration. So I, I, I've realized that kids need a lot of downtime in order for ideas to click into place, but their schedules are so filled nowadays with like school and then extracurriculars and adult-led activities that they often don't have time for just sit down and linger. And, you know, I'm a writer, so I know how important it is. Like sometimes I'm like trying to force an idea and I know that I need to step back and let it, you know, just sit and I have to go on a walk or not do anything. And then after a week, it's like, boop, it comes, you know, that creative insight comes. I don't think with all this structured environments and the bells and the subjects and the extra quick, kids don't have that downtime to get bored and just linger with their thoughts. I think it's super important. And so I would, I would allow time for that during the day. And then just for them to engage in anything they're interested in, whether it's sports or extracurriculars or instruments or you know, I think problem solving is huge. And we'll talk about that today as well. But you know, whether it is, you know, going online and joining a community where they like synthesis, which I can talk about in a bit, where they're engaging in, you know, complex problem solving scenarios with high stakes, where they're competing against other kids and like working with other and learning how to collaborate with kids from all over the world. So these are all a bunch of different things that I think that in combination would create that ideal scenario. So you mentioned AI. So just to spend a minute on that, what are some of the things that you're seeing out there now that are either in production already or in use already or that you think are on their way soon? Because prior to AI, it seems like the technology offerings that were out there were in many ways antithetical to what you write about in your book, right? They're very linear, they're very structured. And there were some examples where it was a little more choose your own adventure, but that was not the sort of main thrust of education technology up until now. So it's striking that you think AI has a role in this. And I'm curious to hear why that is. Yeah, yeah. So when I left the school system, I started to explore the alternative options out there. And I started to talk to different people in this space. And a lot of them would be like, oh, my God, look at this very innovative approach and this and that. And a lot of what looked like innovation was just sort of an imitation of what was already there. And so a lot of these apps that I myself used as a teacher for math and for this and for that were quote unquote adaptive and this, I didn't really feel like they were changing 
teaching and learning to its core so that we had different outcomes. I just felt that they were sort of like things that were making things more efficient and helping teachers maybe like grade things better or keep track of things and for students to sort of like memorize things for a test or get better very rote. But they, again, they weren't changing things. But then I encountered this group called Synthesis, which I can talk a little bit more in a bit, but it started off very different. But I'm going to talk specifically about the AI Tutor, which is the, the latest product that we've launched which is honestly, again, blew my mind. Like when I first heard that this is what we were doing, I was a little bit skeptical because again, I understand how important it is for kids to feel like there's a caring human on the other end that wants you to succeed. And I know the kind of impact that I had on my students because I deeply cared. And so I had a hard time understanding how AI or an AI tutor would actually incentivize or motivate kids to want to learn and how could an AI tutor do it better than an adult, like a real human? Well, the way that we've done it at Synthesis, and I know that there are different versions in different companies, but I, you know, maybe I'm biased, but I think that, you know, I'm really impressed with what we've done is we found the best teacher in math, you know, to our knowledge. So his name's Dr. Tanton, and he's a Princeton PhD. He's written 26 books in math. He's one of the ambassadors of mathematics in America. He has all this years of experience. But when you talk to Dr. Tanton, in addition to all the content knowledge, and we're starting with math, that's the first subject that we're experimenting with the tutor. He's so in love with the subject matter that the way that he explains it through stories and examples and he's funny and he has gone so deep into like the history and how math started that it makes you want to learn. Again, this is an example of a great teacher. So we're like, OK, how can we give Dr. Tanton to every kid in the world? I mean, I, I know I would love that for my son and for my students and for every kid. And so we've recorded him for hours and hours and hours and hours to the point where we've captured his mannerisms, his stories, his examples the way that he gives feedback, which I think is huge in compared to what we do in schools, and we can talk about that, just like every how it helps you when you're stuck to instead of giving you the answer, it will motivate you by saying and pushing you in different directions until you get to the right answer. I mean, it's really incredible. And then we've put this into this digital tutor to the point where even he says, oh my God, it's scary because it's even better than me. <laughs> it's gotten to the point that I'm like, it's even better. It's like the better version of me. And so that's what we're starting with. And and so, and there's actually a free version online that you can try um, where you learn binary numbers. And it's just so interesting the way that kids get to like try it. And then, you know, you, you hear the examples and there's memes and there's this, and there's like a workspace and kids are really learning very, very fast. Like they're, the problem that we have now is that they're consuming the content so quickly and they master it because we have this test at the end where you can sort of like test for competence, you know, in the particular subject, but then they get to apply what they're learning in the simulations that we have, which are real world problems. And it's just mind blowing. So the kids are actually retaining the knowledge, which again, it was one of the things that would discourage me the most in school, which was I would do all these things. And then after the unit or after the test, I'm like, wait, I would do an open-ended problem. And they, most of them could not apply what they had learned. So I'm like, oh my God, even the ones that got A's, couldn't apply the knowledge or they would forget about it. And I was so frustrated because I kept seeing this. And then here, we're not seeing this. We're seeing that the kids are actually retaining it. They're doing it super fast, super fast. Like in, you know, getting the ac academics, which is what I, what, what I was talking about, out of the way quickly. But what really impressed me the most was how the kids were not into it because of, you know, a lot of the apps that we used have like the characters and we can talk about this, the whole pointsification, you know, that we think it's gamification. But, you know, if you do this, you get this points and you get to go to the piggy bank or you pass to the next level or it's all like 
quote unquote gamified, which is really pointified. But that's what's motivating kids to do the math. But then what happens when the math gets really, really hard? Then those extrinsic rewards are no longer strong enough to make kids want to endure when things get really challenging. So they just kind of give up or tune out. With the digital tutor, we've noted we don't have any of these things. We don't have the colors. We don't have the characters. We don't have anything. And we're not like praising you like, good job, or, you know, the way that we do in these apps that I used to use. It's just the kids are motivated to keep going because they're finally understanding math. They are seeing how this fits into this, why this is helpful, how could this can apply as soon as they finish the session, how this can apply this in the, in the real world. And what we've noticed is that that is such a powerful way to intrinsically motivate them to want to keep going. A lot of these kids, because we've interviewed them, say, I always thought that I was terrible at math and I've never felt good at math in school. And then suddenly they're trying the tutor and it's like, wait, I'm actually good at this. And what happens is that, and you know, you've probably experienced this as well. But when I was a teacher, I was very frustrated because I had a lot of students that would come from second grade or when I was in third, from fourth, you know, from third grade when I was in fourth with all this knowledge, like gaps in their knowledge from previous grades. And sometimes I did not have the time to sit down with each and every student until they finally you know, caught up so that I could, because I, I had 30 students, right? I had to keep going and, and I couldn't stop the whole class for this, even though I wanted to. And so as a result, a lot of them would continue to linger with these gaps that just end up, you know, becoming pawns by the time they get older. And so with the tutor, you finally have someone that's like infinitely patient that can just stay with you until you've mastered the content. And to me, that's like revolutionary, right? Like imagine if we could actually like, that's something that would close the achievement gap, right? And so now we're working really hard on, okay, how can we make this so good? Because again, it's experimental. We're trying, there's lots of bugs and, and, you know, but it's very promising the results and the attitude of the kids. So imagine if every kid could have access to something like this for every subject. I feel like, you know, our world would be a completely different place. So it sounds like if the core block is, I know you're saying you're not envisioning a school per se that does all these things, but bear with me for a second. So if the school block, let's say, starts with a couple hours of tutoring one-on-one with an AI-driven computer program, where does project-based learning fit in and what did some of the rest of the day look like in your sort of perfect school? I would first start the day with the kids running outside and playing outside. So then when they're really tired, ironically, that's when you get them in and, you know, you can have them indoors. And that's when you would probably start the learning. Also, we have kids that are more alert at different times of the day. So that's also a factor to take into consideration. And I talk to many parents that tell me like, you know, my kid, one of my kids will observe all everything in the morning. The other one's definitely like more alert in the afternoon. So figuring out, you know, so, so as I'm talking about this, because you're asking me, um, I'm going to talk in general, but really I, I think it depends on the kid, right? But let's say that then you start with the digital tutor after they've run around and released all the energy. And so now their brains are, you know, in tune and, and they're, they're awake. And then you would start with what they're interested in. So I would have this box in my classroom. And again, I had to like, I didn't really do project-based learning because I did not have the time because I had to do other stuff, but I would try to do a version of it where the kids would write about the things that they were interested in at the moment. Like Ms. Fab, I really want to learn about hurricanes right now, about whatever it is. And so the kids that were interested in that would work on, you know, they would start with like a a pressing question that they had and they had to like, you know, work around that. And so I think a good place after learning sort of with the digital tutor would be to open it up for project-based learning based on what the kids are interested in. And so again, you can structure this different ways. I mean, it's easier when you have a smaller group. And then again, you're, you're kind of asking me if it were like an 8 to 3 p.m. kind of schedule. It could be. But if that's not what you would do, like, what would you do? Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I mean, yeah. So I, I would then probably enroll them in something, right? Maybe a sport. I think that sports are 
are super important for kids' development. And we can talk about that too, because I also think that it's important to find the right sport for the kid. And for that, they need to be allowed to try many things and quit the ones that don't serve them. But I think that then also finding something in their community that they want to be part of and that's sort of for a cause. What I've realized is the most successful people that I look up to and the leaders and everything, they have like a cause that they're super passionate about. And so I think that that's not something that just magically happens. For some kids, it does. But I think that that's something that parents need to sort of guide them towards and they need to be involved since they're little and sort of build up to that. And but seeing that you know, the world has a bunch of problems, but they have, they can act on those problems. And for that, you kind of have to give them opportunity for that. So maybe, in, you know, have some space for that. Super important. I think they need free time for reading for just for, you know, for, for pleasure, not like, you know, I had that library where it was like by levels and this and that. And what I quickly realized was that when you start telling kids like this is your level. So here are the books that you're allowed to bookshop for, because then I'm going to be doing the literacy assessment and they totally unplug and they're like, you know, they don't want to read for pleasure. It's just like a, a task that you're giving them. So just open it up, whatever it is that they want to read. And I've changed my mind on this, actually. Like at the beginning, I was like, it has to be substance reading. But then I was like, no, actually, no, it's anything they're interested in because it's kind of like food, right? Like you're at the beginning, you're just trying different things, but then eventually you're going to start to eat the things that are healthier and you're going to start to understand the things that, you know, make you grow stronger and this and that. But the beginning is just a matter of like eating, right? And so it's the same, just get them to the habit of reading, whatever it is that they're interested, no judgment, whether it's magazines or fiction, nonfiction, what are comics. And then once, you know, start building that habit of reading, I feel like that's one of the best ways to learn. And I feel like that's something that we actually squash in schools because of the way that we teach it. And so I would give them sort of sacred time for reading. And then, yeah, again, free play, unstructured, free play, not led by adults. Sometimes we want to intervene and be like, this is no, like just give them the chance to get bored. This reading question and sort of choice of books question is one that my wife and I debate sometimes as pertains to our own kids. Because left up to his own devices, my son would choose Captain Underpants for 100% of his reading. And I think for some kids, this is true of me. It's, it's true of a lot of students that I've taught. If you start there, they get excited about reading. They move on to other things and, and you know, they never stop. And then for other kids, they'll take on the lowest lift they possibly can and never get to some of the more complex texts or some of the more canonical readings that they might need to know about when they get to high school, college, whatever. How would you deal with that latter group of students? So what I've noticed is that usually the kids that are do that, that grab like the lowest level books and that they the minimum effort and that just stick with the same thing for those were the kids that were forced to read before they were ready. So and this is very interesting in democratic schools. So like, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Sudbury schools. That's where I first started to read about all this. But basically, there's no research that supports that, you know, by first graders, kids need to be reading. And yet that's kind of universally or not universal, like mostly in the States, but there are many countries that do it too. And Finland is different, but it's what happens. And we kind of don't question that. But yet we put a lot of pressure on the parents, on the kids and on the teachers. Your kid needs to be reading by first grade. What there is a lot of research on is that kids develop at different rates and mature at different rates. And some kids are ready to read by three. Some kids are ready to read by 12. And I know this is hard for a parent to hear because if you're like, my kid is 11 and they're not reading, you know, there's something wrong with them. However, the research shows that if you expose them to a rich environment, uh, like a literacy rich environment, and you read to them or they see you reading and they're around people that are, you know, 
constantly reading and you let them browse through things and you don't pressure them, you expose them a lot, but you don't pressure them, that they eventually pick up on reading. Reading is a very hard skill, but the results are really negative when you force them before they're ready. Some are ready by seven, and so that's not a problem. So what ends up happening is a lot of kids end up in the reading remediation group and then all this, you know, labels, and they start believing this. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, I'm I'm not very good at reading, so I why would I even try, right? I don't want to do this thing for pleasure. Obviously not. It's like super hard in school, and I'm already, like, judged by it, and I'm already, why would I want to grab a book for pleasure? And so these are the kids in my experience, and I know that it may be different for other people and other teachers, but in my experience, these are the kids that then don't want to read or, you know, everyone's reading and they are reading. They're really playing around or like messing around or they grab the easiest book or they stick to, you know. And so that's one thing. The other thing that I've noticed is I would be willing to bet that if you let your kid continue with Captain America, that's what he's interested in. A way to kind of introduce him to other stuff could be, you know, when you are reading on your own, you get to do Captain America, but then once a day or once every Tuesday or whatever, we're going to read together. We're going to pick a book together. Or maybe, you know, you get to pick one book and I get to pick one book. He'll probably pick Captain America. You can you get to pick another book. And then I'm going to listen to you when you're reading your stuff. And I want to, I want to, and then you're going to listen to me or we're going to do this together. And so it's like a compromise, right? So they feel like you're giving them a choice and like they, they, they have some autonomy over what they're reading. But then you're also in certain, you know, that variety that you want to start exposing them to. So that's what I would suggest for someone that's only sticking to one kind of book. But in reality, if you make it about the reading, I'm pretty positive and I'm willing to bet that eventually he won't read Captain America forever. <laughs> He'll be interested in other stuff. I hope so anyway. Um, so you talk about how kids sort of take to reading at different points in, in their life. It could be when they're very young. It could be when they're older. As someone running 20 schools, it's hard for me to envision sort of how do you operationalize that, right? Like we need to know that the kid who isn't reading when they're you know nine years old is going to be the kid who just should have started later and will still be able to read by the time they go off to college, right? And it's hard to do that, obviously, in a classroom if you sort of allow for the fact that you're now going to have 12-year-olds or 8-year-olds or whatever who aren't reading alongside other 8- or 12-year-olds who read very fluently under this model. You say in your book you would get away with or do away with age-related groupings altogether. Do I have that right? And can you explain that a little bit better if I do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so what I talk about in my book is I'm a big fan of mixed-age grouping. And, and this doesn't mean that you're going to have, you know, 5-year-olds and 18-year-olds in the classroom. No, there's, of course, cutoffs that make sense. Like, usually, and I'm going to talk in grades, but really these are not not even grades. So this is not, but it's usually around like first to third graders are grouped together and then fourth to sixth graders are grouped together and so on and so forth. So there is ways of grouping kids, but I'm a huge fan of this because, well, first of all, it's a very Lindy idea. And I talk about this in my book and I'm super interested in all ideas that are Lindy, which are basically that have stood the test of time and that, you know, they're for many, many years ago and they're still around for a reason. So I usually try to look at those things because I find them super interesting and still relevant. One of them was mixed age grouping. So in the past, we used to learn in, in, in one room schoolhouses where you had, you know, kids from different ages. And if you think about it, and I always ask this question because I'm always like, huh, like when in the real world do you only interact with people your age? I really can't think of any scenario other than school. Right. And so the first thing is, if we want to do it in a more real world way, then you would have, again, older kids interacting with younger kids and with like people in the community, et cetera, et cetera. So first thing, it's it's a more natural way to learn, to interact and socialize. The second thing, and I, I stood and taught at, and this was the first time I saw it at a placement in New York that was a mixed stage group um, school. And so the first thing I noticed was how the teacher could literally step out and leave the classroom and nothing would change. The kids were still 
there's teaching, there's learning, like they were behaving. It was just, it was like very, very organized. And the reason why is because the older kids are so motivated by teaching the younger kids because they're like, oh, I know a little bit more than you and I get to teach you. And usually that's like an incentive. And then we know that one of the best ways to learn something is by teaching it, right? You get to crystallize the learning. And so you see that. And then you have the younger kids, which is what blew my mind. They want to imitate the older kids and they want to do what the older kids are doing. And sometimes it's like something that you're like, no way, like they're never going to be able to do this. Like this is like, and they will surprise you most of the time. Like that's what I've noticed from working with kids in general, like they're capable of much more than we give them credit to. The problem is that in school, by putting them into grades, we put a speed limit. We say, okay, you're going to learn up to here because you're in second grade. You get to learn about this when you get to third grade. But what if that kid was actually ready in second grade to learn about that? Or maybe the fourth grade or maybe the fifth grade material, you know, why are we priving them? You know, that's when they start to misbehave because they're bored because they, you know, but once you have them in this mixed stage environments, they're suddenly tackling and, and, you know, taking risks and, and doing things that, Otherwise, they wouldn't have tried before. And again, it's a more natural way of teaching and learning. And they are able to advance a lot faster and mature a lot faster because they're trying to imitate and do what the older kids are doing. And so, again, the teacher could step out, (laughs) which is pretty impressive. And I know that it was a little messy. It was a little chaotic. I used the word organized earlier. That's actually not the word that I was going for. It was just very engaging and student-centered. That's what I was going for. It was not organized. It was actually messy and chaotic. But here's what, um, I mean, chaotic in the sense that, you know, kids were here, they were there. There was a lot of noise. It did not look structured or organized. And so, but here's the other thing that I've, I've realized. And again, this took me a while as a teacher, because I was very used to, as a student myself, like everything ordered, like if a teacher, like, you know, if the principal walked in the classroom and everyone was sitting down quietly and looking at the teacher, then there's a lot of learning going on. It turns out it's the opposite. I mean, according to my experience, like if you walk into a classroom where kids are standing up and they're building and they're talking and they're doing this, and, they, and, and of course, like they're engaging then that's when real learning is happening. And so that's what I noticed and probably what took me the most time to get used to in these environments. It was it was very loud and, and again, very student-directed. So the teacher did not have necessarily like control over everything that was happening or, you know, but I think that that's a good thing, right? Like, I think that that's something that, again, I've been shifting more towards and, and it's easier said than done because you kind of, as a teacher, feel like you need to control everything. But in reality, no. And the over planning, that was the other thing. Like for me, I would be that teacher that would like, I would stay until 8 p.m. at night, like going through all the lesson plan, having everything ready, everything perfect and try to follow it to the script. And then I realized, wait, wh- why am I even doing this? Like in reality, when I show up and suddenly there's a question that pops up that's way more interesting that exactly where I was going to take this lesson to, why don't we go from there? Then suddenly my kids were way more engaged. And so we didn't necessarily follow the lesson plan, but I felt like the learning was way more than if I had followed the lesson plan. And again, I know this is hard to hear for people that have classrooms and have schools and are running, like you said, but it goes back to this idea that it's really hard to standardize learning. And I, I don't think that schools are terrible, play, like not at all. Like we're trying to educate kids, right? And bring them together and making things fun and all this. But I feel like it's not the best environment when we try to, in the name of order and to have some sort of control, we end up putting things too much into a box. And that's when I think that things start to go sideways. And you mentioned standardized learning. And in your book, you mentioned standardized testing. I imagine some of the people listening to this are wondering like, okay, this sounds great, but how do we keep track of whether kids are learning? How do we make sure that schools aren't just serving some subgroups well and and not others? For a long time, standardized testing has been the way that the 
public can tell if, you know, if black students are doing different, you know, are learning more or less than white students, if males are learning more or less than females. And it seems from your book, like you have major critiques of standardized testing, but maybe wouldn't do away with it altogether. Am I, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So this is a very broad, complex topic. And so I'm just going to kind of navigate it the way that I have with questions and with research and by prefacing that I'm no, I'm no expert, right? All I have is my experience and the research that I've done and kind of common sense by asking all these questions. So if you look at when we started using assessments, which was around the 1960s after World War II and the Industrial Revolution, and it was a way to kind of keep quality and control, right? Like schools needed a way to sort of make sure that what they were doing made sense. And so they used them as a baseline in or, or like a checking point in order to get an idea of where kids were in certain topics. And I think that that's fine. I think that it gives us a good sort of general idea uh, or checkup of where kids are in those specific subjects. The problem is that fast forward to now and everything revolves around this tests and about, you know, around this assessments and the people that are creating this assessments are also creating the curriculums and are also creating the lesson plans. And so everything is sort of teaching for the test. And so everything is, is around that. And I think that that's sort of where we've gone wrong. And, and there's a lot of things that have happened because of that, that are actually very negative. And so let's just start with this whole, you know, th the most genuine parts of learning can't be measured because because, or like measure to the dot, because they usually happen when kids are relaxed and they're exploring and they're tinkering with things and they're making mistakes without fearing that they're going to get judged by it with a grade or that an adult's kind of like observing them. That's when true learning happens, right? It's, it's again, a process that's so natural that we're all born with. You just have to look at babies to kind of realize that. And so the problem is that once we start telling them like, okay, you're learning, but I'm going to give you a test after, at the end of the week and you better pass that test because otherwise you're going to get a bad grade that's going to haunt you for the rest of your life and then college. And then they, we're suddenly putting all this high stakes that in the assessment that get in the way of this authentic learning. And so suddenly everything becomes about performing and about, you know, doing well in these tests. And I was really mortified when I worked at, you know, I'm, I'm not going to mention the school, but we had to do this state test at the end of the year. And that was the first time I was participating because when I was younger, it was not like that. And so everything was about the test. And so like maybe like four months or maybe five months before the test, everyone was doing test prep, everyone. And the whole day was around test prep and the parents were stressed out. The teachers were stressed out, like the kids were stressed out. And, and so I was like, okay, before we didn't have a lot of time for, for, in order to do the fun things about learning. What about now? Like now everything is about this. And we keep telling kids high stake test, high, the pressure and the nerves and the kids would have like stomach aches from like, oh, you know, all this. And then what would happen? They would take the tests. A lot of the kids that I knew, especially because, you know, I had some for two years in a row because I moved up with them. I knew that they knew this content. They just didn't perform well in, in standardized tests. And so they did very poorly. And it's not a reflection of what they knew. So that was very frustrating because how do I explain that to their parents? Or maybe they had a bad day that morning. They didn't sleep the night before. Who knows? So that was one thing. And then I had the students who would get like the highest grades. And then when I did this open-ended problems at the end, they had no idea how to apply the knowledge. And so it got me thinking about many things. The first thing is, you know, what authentic metrics do we look at or do we really value? Like, do we think that if everyone is accountable for learning for a test that has information that you know, does not transfer into viable careers or paths of opportunity or anything that endures after the test, then is that really accountability? 
Like, are kids no longer falling through the cracks? So that's something that I often think about. I often think, you know, this idea that testing equals accountability, I think we need to reframe that. Because do we really think that these tests that we are, you know, revolving everything around, are they truly measuring competence? Like competence, the kind of things that they're going to need in the real world? Do we, you know, do, do we think that, you know, making the whole revolving and building schools around this makes sense. Like if you ask me, no. And then going back to your question about, you know, well, what about the different groups of kids? And so it's interesting because, if you know, how do this achievement gaps look now that we've really have all this like increase in testing and overall, like how do this achievement gaps look? And I actually, I'm going to pull up my phone because I was having coffee this morning, reading this Wall Street Journal article and here's what I was reading. Statewide, in 2019, 36% of all third grade students could read at grade level. That's an F, and that's the good news. That number drops to 27% for Hispanic students and 22% for Black students statewide. In certain public school systems, the numbers plummet to single digits. In Decatur, 2% of Black third graders are reading at grade level, and only 1% are doing math at grade level. So a child who can't read in third grade level can't do word problems in fourth grade, right? Or science experiment in fifth. So promoting decanter children to the fourth grade when 99% are below grade level in math condemns them to a future of failure. I can keep going, but wow, you know, wow. So, you know, do you think that this increase in standardized testing has actually closed that achievement gap? If you ask me, the answer is no. And so I don't think I have the right answer, not at all. You know, otherwise I probably wouldn't be sitting here chatting with you or, or yes. But I think that what I do have is, and I talk about this in my book on a very broad level, some ideas of how we can start to reconsider what we're doing. Because what I do know for sure is that what we're doing right now is not really working. And so what I propose in my book is what if we lower the stakes. And by that, I mean, we don't need to get rid of tests. We just need to make them less important, right? They shouldn't be the whole reason why kids are going to school and the whole, the only way that we use to measure what they're learning, right? And so that's one thing. And the other thing is, what if we opened up the options and brought in these options? Again, we know that every kid is different. They learn at different paces. They learn at different rhythms. And so I, I think it doesn't quite make sense, just like it doesn't make sense to have like one system you know, for everyone. And this is how you succeed. And this is how you learn. I don't think that's right. I don't think we should have one way to assess them. Like standardized tests could be one way, but what if we kind of like got inspired by what homeschoolers do, which is that they submit a portfolio to the local board of education at the end of the year that includes a bunch of different assessments, songs and business plans and project-based learning and tests. And, and so I feel like that would allow students to truly show what they're learning, right? In a, more, in a way that's more authentic to them, more relevant to them. And it would lower that pressure that I think it's hindering the way they're performing. Yeah, I think my experience with standardized testing, actually, the day that I decided I needed to open a school outside of the district bureaucracy. So I was a teacher in New York City. And on the last day of school, in my first year of teaching, they got all the kids in the auditorium, 1200 kids, and they started reading. I didn't, nobody knew, or I didn't know anyways, what was about to happen. But the principal got up on stage and started reading every student's name and either pass or fail. And there were students in that auditorium who had gotten straight A's all year, but they had a bad day on the test and they failed, weeping in the aisles or weeping in their seats. And then there were kids who hadn't come to class all year, but somehow managed to pass the standardized test who were dancing in the aisles. And so 
on that day, I just said, we have to start a school. Forget about the standardized testing pieces of this, but just like we have to start a school because the system is so broken the way that it is that this can't be done to kids. So some of that, you mentioned pressure earlier on teachers, on school administrators, et cetera. I think it's good to be under pressure to deliver for students, for all students, but especially those students who are reflected in in some of the failure rates, essentially, of the low passing rates that you mentioned earlier. But it doesn't behoove any of us to pretend like that pressure doesn't create perverse incentives that then people sort of respond in a rational way that that hurts kids. And so it's something that I think like the portfolio system sounds great. It also sounds very hard to operationalize at a school-wide level, let alone a district-wide or statewide level. But it's clear that the way that it plays out now is harmful in many ways, even if there are some positive trade-offs to it as well. You know, and I just want to quickly mention, because I am, you know, I am part of Synthesis, which is an educational startup that, you know, we're trying to create sort of like an alternative to the K through 12 system. And we've spent, you know, one remarkable product at a time. The recent one is the tutor. But one thing that I love, and at the same time, is it's like we need to be so patient, is that we haven't, even though we get pressure from parents, from it's like, how are you measuring? How are you measuring? How are you measuring? How do you know what the kids are learning? We're constantly thinking about this. Don't get me wrong. We're constantly, and we have groups of people trying to figure out, but we don't want to fall into the trap of making this about the assessment because we understand it's super important to find a way to track what they're learning and to measure that, especially because we want them to improve. And for that, they need to understand the things that they need to work on. But we want to make sure that we do it in a real world way or in a way that provides feedback loops and that they, you know, they're not, that doesn't discourage them, but rather incentivize them to say, hey, what did I get wrong so that I can improve? Because that's the whole point. If you think about the whole point of an assessment is to try to help kids improve on the things that they yet don't know. And so it's interesting because I, I feel like we kind of forget about that because we, 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 we keep thinking about the grades and college and this and that. And it's funny because the answer of the reason why we use tests can't be college because college is not an answer. College is a place that may come with opportunity, but it may also come with depth and it may also come with, you know, it may mean wasted, precious years because you yet didn't know what you wanted to spend the rest of your life doing, or at least part of it. And so, which is a, a you know, a different topic, but it goes back to this idea of what's the point? You know, we need to go back to thinking, what are we trying to do? Oh, we're trying to give them feedback so that they can improve. And we were trying to do it in a way that that encourages them to want to keep learning, not the other way around. I feel like a big problem now is that kids you know, they're so scared when they you, you give them that F or that red mark that they no longer want to approach that. And so what's the whole point? Like, like they're not even picking up on what they got wrong and wanting to improve. They, they have an aversion to that. They don't want to look at that anymore. And that's that's really problematic. Right. And so we're really taking our time and we're designing different things. And we're like, nope, this doesn't work. Yes. But, but it's taking so much time. We've probably been doing it for the past three years and we still don't have an answer. We're getting close, but we're trying to do it. And we're trying to do it at scale. Like what's something that's going to measure the progress, give them the kind of feedback they need to improve. And how can we do this at scale? So Lots of work there, but but I see what you're saying. It's very hard. Yeah, and just to tell the other side of the story, it has definitely been true prior to NCLB and other testing regimes that differences in learning attainment by students, especially across different demographic groups, has politicians, you know, public figures, educators as well, have swept under the rug lack of attainment for for low income students or for students of color. And so we're not going to solve all the testing problems of the world today. It's clear that, as you said, that the current system isn't doing what it was intended to do. 
And maybe there's a way that we can continue to provide accountability, but in a way that better measures or assesses how our students are actually learning and and in a way that matters in the real world. Switching gears a little bit to, you mentioned parents and you just became a a parent. So congratulations, (laughs) less than a year ago, it sounds like, right? Yeah, 10 months. (laughs) And what is your advice for parents who read this book or just starting to put their kids in school and really like what you're saying in here, but I don't know a school that does this stuff. Does that school exist? And like, what what would you advise them to do? So the first thing that I would say is when I, I talk a lot about what's wrong with the school and the school system and this and that. And I'm, 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 I'm generalizing when I say that, you know, I'm talking about like the very traditional schools, which happen to be most of them. But of course, there are other wonderful schools out there that I've had the, you know, the opportunity to go and visit and see what they're doing, or I've seen online what they're doing. And, and it's really inspiring. And, you know, so so sometimes people are like, oh, but but my school is different. I, I believe you, like, it's not every school that's like that. I'm just talking about sort of like the, the general um, schools. But There are some schools that are doing, for example, there are a lot of project-based schools that are doing things differently. And again, all this tend to be smaller because like you said, it's so, so it gets really complicated once you try to do this at, at, you know, at a big level. But what I would say is, you know, the first thing is the traditional school system does work for certain kids, right? It just doesn't work for every kid. It's like a small percentage. And so if if your kid falls in that, you know, for example, I always talk about how my husband's like the perfect example for this, right? He was perfect for the school system. It worked for him. He loved it. He he loved his teachers. He never had any problem. And so if that's the case, you know, maybe my my son will be that. And maybe you'll hear me saying that I haven't been a traditional school. Who knows? What I'm trying to say is you need to get to know your kid and know what's the kind of environment that they thrive on. And how do you know that they're thriving? Because they come back and telling you, about what they learned. They're excited. They want to keep learning on their own. They're motivated when they come out of school. Like, like that kind of, that those are hints that again, they're not necessarily measurable with numbers, but you can tell when your kid is learning. And so if that's the case, then don't mess with that. That's great. If that's not the case, then that's when, and I talk about this concept of skin in the game in the book of like, and it's this whole notion that, you know, a lot of parents think that they just delegate their kids' education to school completely, and that's it. And it's the, the teacher's job and the school's job to make sure that my kid is learning because that's why I'm paying. And I'm here to say, like, no, I've, I've been a teacher. I'm now a parent. And unfortunately, no. And, and, and this concept that I talk about in my book, Skin in the Game, is like you are responsible for the outcomes of your choices and whether that's good or whether that's bad. And so if things are not going, you know, the way that you expected for your kid, it's not the school's problem. It's I'm sure that, yeah, maybe there's like this one teacher that, they, but but you shouldn't go there. Like, it's more like, okay, maybe this is not the right environment. What am I going to do about it? So it's not going and blaming the teachers and who have 30 other students or blaming the schools that are trying to do the best they can with all the things that it's like, okay, what can I do in order to, if I can't pull my kid out of school to supplement, you know, their education by finding alternative programs or things that they're excited about that are nurturing that other side of them. You know, they're not excited in school. At least they come home and then, you know, you enroll them in this thing that they're super passionate about and they have a purpose and they're starting to see what they're good at. And so it's about finding then and complementing the things. And there are a lot of options nowadays, maybe not as many as we would hope for, but, but that again, the alternative education space is growing. So I would say, and again, I mentioned some in my book, I have a section like how to exit the school system without leaving school. And so there's some things that you can do at home to kind of make sure that you're preparing kids for the real world and nurturing their curiosity and all this side that I argue that lots of schools are not doing. And so that's one thing. And the other one that I often talk about as well is like the parents will always be 
the best teachers that a kid could ever have. Always, always, you know, even if, and so try to really maximize the time that you're spending with your kids outside of school, not arguing over homework or giving them more chores or more things that, you know, are like in the future that they cannot understand or feel why you're asking them. Like, no, like try to actually, you know, push or see what they're really excited about and be the perfect enabler. Like I, I started this conversation saying my mom did that and, and I, I really admire that. And I've been reading about all the successful entrepreneurs and, and you know, leaders that have made it in their career wise. And, and what they all have in common is they had really supportive parents that saw their interest in something and said, you know what, you are willing to put in the hard work and the hours and that's what it takes to be successful. And so go for it. And, and what can I do to support you? What, you know, what are the tools or the space that I can provide to support that thing that you're really excited about? And so I think that that's something that any parent can do. It takes time. It's not easy, but I think it's worth it. You mentioned in your book, in addition to academic topics and, and learning, and you mentioned earlier sports. And it reminded me of an author, David Epstein, who we had come speak to all of our teachers. He wrote this amazing book, Range. I think you reference it in your book, where he talks about the fact that even the very best athletes in the world, unless they're in a sport, sometimes like golf, where the ball is stationary and the whole gig is just to hit it so many times that you have muscle memory for it. But other than that, the best athletes are ones who've played multiple sports and didn't specialize or at least didn't specialize early. And I think about this with my son who loves soccer. If he had his way, he'd play 12 hours of soccer a day and probably nothing else ever, although he is getting into more sports now. And, and the way that sports work now is, at least in our community, is if you sign your child up for soccer and they want to be good enough to play on the high school team and that sort of thing down the road, they basically have to go five days a week to two hours a night of practice in that one sport. And it's all year round, which is not the case for me. When I was a kid, we played basketball in the winter. We played baseball in the spring and so on. I'm curious, how do you apply this concept of range, which I think we've heard throughout this discussion, you've mentioned a few times students choosing what they want to do in school and how do you apply that to sports and athletics and other extracurriculars? Yeah, I, I love this concept. And, and yeah, I also learned about it from, from David Epstein, this whole idea of, you know, generalizing early and then specializing later in life. And so I think there's something really valuable to this because like you said, not only in sports, but actually in every profession, like even like the Nobel Prize winners, like they have a background on many, many, many different things before they actually decided to go into their particular field. And I think that that's what makes them so special and so unique, the fact that they come with a different perspective. I often get the compliment that people enjoy my writing because it's a mix from different from the fields of sports and entrepreneurship and finance and gaming. And, and the reason for that is because I find it very boring myself if I'm only reading education books. The moment that I start to read about other fields and other areas, everything starts to spark. And I'm like, oh, this applies to kids. This applies to learning and everything ends up applying because I'm obsessed with this topic, right? Which is, you know, but, but I think that that's sort of what gives me that unique perspective, not only like my experience, but also the fact that I am drawing from different fields and different things that successful people are doing or learning about that we can bring to kids. And so I think this is true for, for a lot of people. And what I would encourage is, and I talk about this in my book of how to encourage range from a young age is first you, you give them like a sampling period where you tell them, okay, you get to, I know you really love soccer, but you get to actually 
try other sports because believe it or not, I think it was Michael Jordan too that actually played other sports and that's what made him. And he talks about this, like that's what made him such a great basketball player. If you tell this to your kid, you know, but maybe using a, a soccer player um, that he knows or likes or whatever and be like, you know, you, you know what made him so good? It wasn't the fact that, yeah, he spent a lot of time on his craft and perfectioning his craft, but he also made time to play other sports because it helped him develop this other skills or other movements or other muscles that then made him better than his other teammates or rivals that were playing the same sport. And so trying to convince them, you know, of the facts, right, which is that when you try different things, but then here's what's really interesting. When you give that sampling period, make sure you tell them that if they try it after a while and they don't like it or they don't feel like they're good at it, they can quit. And sometimes when parents hear this, they're like, well, no, I want to teach my kids grit and perseverance and all this, which is super important. But if your kid is persevering in the wrong direction or if their talents are better used somewhere else, then they're better off quitting, right? And there's a value to that. And here's what I've noticed. When you tell kids you get to try these things out and you get to quit if you don't like them, they're more willing to try them. But when you don't tell them that and they think they have to stick with the things that they try, that's when you see that they're more risk averse or they don't want to try it and they're very because they're like, I don't want to try that and then have to stick with that if I don't like it. But if you give them the option, you will notice that most of the time they're willing to try it and maybe even stick around a little bit. But then after a while, you know, and then so one thing that I also say is like together make a list of like principles or ideas of reasons why they would drop this sport or, or quit or whatever it is that they're doing. Right. And so in the book, I give an example of, of how I did this with my students. So I started to notice that a lot of them did not want to start books because they were like, if I started, I have to stick with it until the end. And what if I don't like it? What if I get bored? And I was like, OK, you know what? Let's make a list of principles why we would abandon a book. And so we started listing them as a class and this and that, and we put it up. And what started happening, a bunch of kids started to abandon books. And at the beginning, I was like, oh, let's see how this experiment goes. And then what I noticed that happened over time was that kids, once they found the right book, they would stick with it. And some kids were actually starting to finish and end books and read books when before they would not. And they were excited. And they were like, Ms. Fak, look, I finished another book. I really like this. Why? Because I was giving them the opportunity to say no to the things that they weren't that into and saying yes to the things that they were really into. And so again, there's a, you know, there's a way and there's a balance and, and it's not always going to be perfect. But I think that you know, practicing this and it's applicable to everything. You know, you're going to try baseball for the first time. Okay. I know you're not that excited. Let's make a list of principles why you would potentially stop going. So that's one thing. The other thing is helping them reflect after it through very specific questions like, you know, what felt really good or, you know, what was, what was challenging? What do you think you would get better at if you stick with this a few more weeks? You know, what do you think it takes to be really great at this sport? You know, like these kinds of questions that get them to kind of reflect and realize, you know, because kids, they have a hard time seeing long term. And so when you're like, you know, you, you can start to talk and I, and I talk about this in my book, too, with different things like talking about these things like a muscle, right? Like you go to the gym and at the beginning you're very weak and you can't do pull ups or whatever. But the more you go and then you start to get better. That sometimes helps for them to realize, okay, I need to stick to this. But but it's that whole notion of inviting them to reflect and realize that maybe if they keep going, they're going to improve. And it gives them that hope. And so that's the other thing. And then I talk about a few more in the book that now I'm blanking. But But those are some that come to mind when I think of range. I also talk about specific knowledge, which is kind of the other side of it, which is once you've tried several different things, I think that one thing that we get wrong in school is that 
we're often trying to remediate the kids' weaknesses, and we spent our majority of the time doing that instead of doubling down on their strengths for many reasons, right? And it's hard for, for us to try to like make kids great in every single in, in their individual things. But but anyway, that's one thing that I've noticed as well. So with specific knowledge, it's it's something that that kids are every kid is great at something, right? So it's parents helping them find what's that one thing that feels like play to them but looks like work to others. And it can it, it can be something very unconventional. And I give a bunch of examples in the book of things that you maybe hadn't even thought about, but but it's finding that thing and then making sure you give them practice or, or you let them engage in that thing, you know, after they've tried the range, right? It's like try a variety and generalize early, but then start to like specialize so that Hopefully when they graduate, they from high school or, or, or whatever kind of, they have an idea of what they're uniquely good at, what they can provide value and what they would like to spend, maybe not all their life doing, but at least, uh, you know, right now when they graduate from school and what would they get paid for, right? Like what's sort of like a skill that they uniquely have. And I think that um, that's something that parents can really help with because, you know, you're observing them since they're little. So it's usually things that come naturally to them or that they're usually drawn to. For me, I think it was teaching. You know, I, I loved explaining things in ways that captured people's attention. My parents noticed that and they would feed that. And so, so, so yeah, it's just kind of like finding that. And in the book, I talk about, you know, how to develop range, how to develop specific knowledge, and then quitting, which is sort of like the linchpin between those two things and, and how to do it in a way that is productive, right? And, and, you know, persevere on the things that that are worth persevering, but then quitting on the things that not and, and and then pivoting and then making room to learn about the things that you actually are good at. Well, you said you love explaining things in a way that catches people's attention. Your book, The Learning Game, has certainly done that. It is a fascinating read. Really loved it. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Where can people find out more about your book? Where can they order it? Where can they find out more about you? Yeah, so since September 5th, it's available in every bookstore, but also online. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Thrift Books, wherever you shop for books online. And you can find me on Twitter at Anna Fabrega 11, Instagram, Miss Fab underscore Learning Lab, YouTube. And <laughs> so different places I have a newsletter. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. This conversation was great. Thank you, Anna. Sweat the Technique is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. You could follow all of the Branch's podcasts at, at the Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And you could check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so that you can join us every Wednesday for more Sweat the Technique.